Uh, hi everyone, uh, it's good to see you all again. Uh, I'm joined today by Darren Gamash of VGF Farms. Welcome, Darren. Um, Hello, thank you for uh, having me. You're welcome. It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure and a delight to have you on. Uh, we've known each other for many years now and been visiting the farm for some time, so it's great to see you on screen. Um, and uh, perhaps for those who haven't seen you before, you could just introduce yourself and say what you do on the farm and uh, a bit about yourself. Would that be okay? Well, thank you. Thank you, Paul. I'm uh, Darren Gamash, and uh, the farm is uh, Virgil Gamash Farms. And uh, uh, we're here in Toppenish, and we've been farming hops not nearly as long as your organization, but uh, since uh, 1932. Um, we initially got in, we have kind of a, a funny relationship with hops. Um, my great great grandfather, Charles, I uh, got off the immigrant train in Moxie and started picking hops by hand. And that's kind of was his first introduction, at least as far as I'm aware. And uh, he and his family earned enough money to buy a piece of ground. And they immediately, and it had hops on it, clusters. And he immediately tore all that out, planted potatoes because he didn't want to touch hops ever again. <laughs> and then uh, when prohibition ended, uh, in the 30s, uh, there was that bit of a ramp up. That's when we got back into it. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So were there many farms in the area at that stage or was the, the land just starting to get planted up, I guess? Well, there are quite a few farms. I don't know right off the top of my head how many, but there had to be over 100, 150 hop farms. Uh, because if you recall, during that period of our time, not that you would, but we were coming into or right in the middle of the Great Depression. Yeah. So yeah. anything that was considered a cash crop was being planted. Yeah. So yeah. and I guess the 1920s, the hops in America were grown across on the uh, on the East Coast uh, for a long time, and before powdery mildew took them out, and then they had to move over as well. Is that, is that part of it? I guess. Yeah, powdery mildew and uh, aphid. Yeah. They called it the hop louse. All right. And, okay. Yeah. And so that's what wiped out New York, wiped out Michigan. They moved it down to uh, uh, California around the Sonoma area. And then uh, it went up the up the uh, coastline, Salem, Independence, that area, and then hit Puyallup. And we have a little city. You'll appreciate the irony of this. We have a little city over there called Kent. Right. And then you grow hops in Kent. That way they didn't have to change the label on the bales. <laughs> we're, we're really good with the Goldings. In Kent, are they? Or west of Kent? <laughs> yeah. So, so then, uh, so yeah, so there was that. And then, of course, up into Canada. And then I think in like the 1850s, 1870s, um, uh, the Carpenter family brought uh ripstock over to the tannum ridge yep. and then one of their employees they used to they used to pay this fellow in roots uh, his name was moses samson and that's where my family we bought our roots from moses oh wow okay wow yeah so there's this nice little tie-in yeah you can trace it right back that's fantastic great yeah. great to hear about the history i was something i haven't heard before even in all the years we know each other i haven't heard that one before so that's great I think um, most most of our customers know you from the Amarillo uh, side of things and that uh, discovery. How many years ago would that be now when we, we, we first found? Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, well, when we first found it, 
I was in high school. Wow. I was okay. a junior in high school. And I remember sitting with my brothers, handpicking this vine uh, into a plastic sack and sending it off to uh, uh, the, the guys at Hop Union. Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now. Not Ralph Olson, but Ralph Olson's predecessor. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a long time. Yeah. That is and a long time. it was my uncle. <clears throat> so we have, so one of our processes is we, we go through the fields and we rogue out off types. And at this period of time, 19, late 1980s, the, the super alphas were starting to come on and, and there was a certain way those hops look in the field. And we noticed that the Amarillo vine had that same look. And so we went up, let it go to maturity, smelled the hops. And I remember dad saying, gosh, I wish beer tasted like this. And that was kind of why we kept that plant. And, uh, and I think in the, in high school, we put a little greenhouse up and we propagated it out to two acres and, uh, grew it and we gave it away for a decade. We just yeah. grew the hop and gave it away and then finally started charging for it. I think maybe, um, mid 90s right like yeah. 97 98 yeah yeah and we did the patent we put the patents together and the trademarks in 2000 2002 somewhere in there yeah so. i first came to the us in 2001 um and i think it was a couple of years after that that we got introduced to amarillo by the pewter bars actually if you remember yeah and then yes they introduced us to the Amarillo and then eventually we started to come and see you at the farm there as well. But it was, uh, so that's uh, a while ago. So it was about four or five years before then that you, you just uh, started to actually get Amarillo into the market. And I suppose that's part of the craft thing, really. The craft brewers coming along, they wanted those flavors and the brewers before that probably didn't want those. So we, that's why it sat there for a while. Well, well, exactly. And uh, it, it, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And then once, um, once people became aware that it was there and that it had a different profile from Centennial or Cascade, and it was quite pleasant, um, then it started to pick up. But it kind of, and it became synonymous now. I read this the other day that it was synonymous with what a West Coast IPA is supposed to taste like. Absolutely. Which is actually quite flattering, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic to think that you've uh, got that hop, that discovered that hop that's uh, uh, been, been synonymous with, synonymous with that um, tag is, is, is amazing because the West Coast IPA style is, is just, well, we, we try and emulate it over here in the UK as well, you know, that, that style. And um, know that the, the, uh, the flavors have, have sort of moved on a little bit. But what, we, what we're trying to sort of, sort, of, sort of say to people here in the UK is, you know, don't forget these uh, varieties that have been used quite a lot already, but they've been used quite a lot already because they are so good. You know, we, we tend to see people going for the latest new varieties, you know, that just come out onto the market. But if you're doing a new beer, key to have a go with something like Amarillo because it's a, it's a beauty of a hop and it will give them some really good results. Um, I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, who were the first brewers that picked up on it? Do you remember? Were there, were there some craft guys who came in and started picking up on it? Or it was just a general growth and it grew it, it, with everyone. Well, I, I think that the first one that I can recollect um, was Vinny. 
Russian River. Yeah, yeah. Um, with his um, with his blind pig, yeah. and which is Natalie's favorite beers, from what I understand, and also uh, the Planet of the Elder releases. Yeah. Because Amarillo and, and Simcoe kind of walked sam uh, hand in hand, and when you paired those two together, it was divine. Worked really well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's excellent. Because Simcoe sat there for a while as well, didn't it? That variety didn't yes. take off for years, and all of a sudden, people started to realize its potential. Uh, I know we had several bales just sat in the store, uh, four or five years old, some of them, and somebody said, oh, what can I try? I said, I've got these old bales if you want to have a go with them. And, uh, a guy called Dave from Weatheroak, I remember it very well, and he used to brew this beer every year with his Simcoe, and it was a stunning beer. And, and he said, I don't understand why more people aren't using this variety. Um, and uh, I think that, that it does take a little while for people to get them into their recipes and get them, them going. So uh, that's probably why Amarillo sat around for a while to start with before it, before it got going, I guess. Well, and then too, the breweries were smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely. mean, the market share was small. They were really all brew pubs. Um, it wasn't until, gosh, maybe 2009 through 11 that you started to see like Green Flash and Ballast Point and these really big investments um, hit with distribution and uh, Elysian, you know, those, yeah. those sorts of things. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting times. And, and how has it been for the last 12 months for you? How have you been coping? Is it We've been doing rather well. I mean, we did uh, the brand. We did a uh, uh, just kind of recognizing the, the pressure that everyone was under. We did a 17% cutback and uh, kind of managed straight through that. And so that's been good. We're looking at uh, doing another sort of thing along those lines again here. Uh, in fact, this week, just to kind of make sure that there's not too much excess. Yep. There's enough pr yep. production, but not over because nobody likes waste. So and also nobody likes older hops as well. People want to get onto those new ones as quickly as possible. So if we can just reduce the yields down a little bit this year, then we can move on to the newer crops sooner. It doesn't clog the stores up, doesn't clog the breweries up. It makes sense because exactly. if we can do it. So I'm sure everybody is very grateful for your help on that because it's uh, as a primary producer of that, it's always very difficult to uh, to, to to come into line with it. But I think uh, it's uh, uh, that'll work well with uh, with breweries. And, and what are you seeing in the U.S. in terms of um, uh, brew pubs and, and uh, breweries out there? Are you, are you, how's it going in, in, in Yakima, for example? Because uh, I see the sports centre was closed. That was uh, a, a real, uh, for those who don't know the sports centre, it's, it's a place where all the brewers go at harvest time to go and drink beer and talk about hops. And uh, it's been world famous for, uh, for that for years. And, and I saw last... Uh, I don't know, maybe September on, on the uh, Yakima Herald that, um, that it had closed. Is that still the case? Well, I believe it's closed, but I also believe that it's been picked up by an investment group out of Seattle. And so hopefully it won't be closed for too long and they'll remodel and, and uh, clean it up a little bit. And start <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think they tried to clean it up a bit a couple of years ago and it probably spoiled the atmosphere in there a little bit. <laughs> they just have to sand the floors and the bars down a little bit, throw another coat of lacquer on it. That <laughs> <laughs> no, was a good place, good place. If you're ever in Yakima, please uh, do try the, the sports center if, it, when it, if and when it reopens, it's a great place. But, well, uh, I will say one thing that we have noticed is that just due to the closures, that the pubs, when they do open, they're packed. Yeah. People yeah. are just flocking to them. 
Yeah. So, which we're very grateful for. Well, we're keeping our fingers crossed over here as well, because uh, this, um, we, I was speaking to our distributor in Australia, the, the guys at Bintani there, and they were saying that um, they really are amazed how quickly, once the lockdown was lifted, how quickly people came back to the pubs and got back into um, normal life, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what we're hoping for over here in the UK with our pubs opening back up in a few weeks of time. We're, we're keeping our fingers crossed that that will happen. Um, but uh, yeah, who knows? We, 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 uh, we just have to keep fingers crossed and pray that everything goes right. Um, so, so for the year ahead, then I guess you, you, you're making those changes, you say, dropping the acreage a little bit or just idling. Are you idling or are you actually pulling a few out? Well, well it, it depends. So on uh, some of the, the oldest acreage that we planted way back in, you know, 2007, 2008, those acres are roguing out. Yeah. So that we'll replant with fresh when the market uh, uh, gives us the indication that we need to do that. Yeah. Um, others were just laying idle for a season. So, and that's a big experiment. We did that last year on our own place. Um, I think we laid idle maybe about a hundred hectare. And so we're going to bring back, Oh, a, a portion of that for this coming season. Um, but we're really curious to see if the, the plants will respond and if there won't, if there will be a, uh, uh, a negative effect, because historically, when you do something like that, um, you never get full yields. You get like a third or a fourth because the plant needs that full growth and the carbohydrate load to push back into the, the roots. Um, and, and traditionally, when you do it, when the, uh, the older farmers had done it, they would only irrigate once a month, you know, or they wouldn't fertilize it or anything like that. We didn't do that. We, we managed the husbandry. We did it proper. Um, so I'm forecasting it'll be fine, <laughs> but <laughs> there are others in the group that are like, eh, let's see, let's yeah, see. I guess it's, it's unknown territory, isn't it? It's a little bit, um, trying to work out what's going on with the plants and, and again, it'll depend on the season, I guess, you know, uh, who would have forecast those fires and the smoke last year and the winds uh, at harvest, you know, that was a very new thing for Yakima. It's the first time I've seen anything like that. Have you seen anything like that before? Well, we've, we've seen that. Well, I haven't seen that wind, but we've seen wildfire smoke uh, two years um, for two years. And the first year was in 2017. Yeah. And I don't know. If, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to run down a rabbit hole here because it's kind of fun because I don't know how many of your clients know, but we do have a rather sophisticated laboratory uh, down in my great grandmother's basement. And it's in the office here. It's actually pretty cool. So um, we have uh, two full-time organic chemists, actually three uh, at the end of the season or by June. Yeah. So we've got some pretty good uh, eggheads down there. And uh, in 2017, we had a layer of smoke that was in the valley. And we noticed on the plants that their maturity curves were interrupted. Right, interesting. So, so it flatlined and did this kind of thing, and then as soon as the UV rays came back in full uh, strength, they ripened. But the windows, the harvest windows, were compressed because it didn't. The plants were still using nutrient. They were still your your weather patterns were still on the same march. So yeah. all it did was compress that. Uh, in contrast, this last year, um, at least for the Amarillo. 
we had matured pretty much normally up to the point where the smoke blew in and that smoke that blew in was horrendous I, i'm sure you've noticed you know the stories but there were yards that were um uh blew, blown down there were uh vines that were shredded uh all of these sorts of things we escaped all of that our and and uh i attribute it to the fact that we harvested or and had our auxiliary producers harvest uh in the window where it was all right yeah um we're currently doing a study this week downstairs um i don't know if you're familiar with um the work that uh that uh, new belgium did on uh smoke taint in the hops i haven't seen that Darren. no no um i can send you the poster later it, it's it's yeah, actually good. really solid work yeah and so we we asked if they could send us their samples and, and uh, we're gonna try, come up with a methodology with our equipment downstairs and kind of figure out where those thresholds lie. But the samples that they sent, you could really smell the difference. One smelled like campfire and the other one, there wasn't any uh, smoke taint to it at all. And uh, uh, we're pretty confident we can see it on our stuff. Yeah. And uh, so if you call me back next week, I'll have an answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I don't think it's anything we've seen on samples over here. The samples that arrived here all smell great. We've checked them all through before the, the, they've gone through the system, and everything's been pretty good. I, I must admit, um, it was a worry for us because we were hearing these rumors that there was a bit of smoke damage. But I hear it was quite a few, far, a, a very few number of farms and a very few number of samples. So um, I don't know whether you it, was any different to that. It was. It was primarily well. The, the surprise was uh, Oregon. Yeah, there was a number of uh, of blocks in Oregon, and they just kind of had a smoke that was just kind of in residence there. And for whatever reason, that's where the strongest taint was coming from from the samples. That's probably probably why we didn't see much of it because um, we don't tend to buy a lot of hops from Oregon because for our British guys in particular, they like. Um, um, the hops which are from Washington state because they have more intensity of aroma. I guess that's because of the warmer and colder conditions in the summer and the winter. Over in Oregon, there tends to be more of a European type climate and it, it, it doesn't accentuate those big flavors. So um, for American hops, we're looking for those big flavors and that's probably why we air towards the Washington side um, mm -hmm. of, the, of the, um, the mountains rather than the Oregon side. You like those 30 degree C days. <laughs> yeah, That's where exactly. the sweet spot is. Make, make those hops, hops sweat and get those loopy loop yeah. hands great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Metabolites start working. <laughs> That's it. No, that's great. Um, well, it's been great catching up with you, Darren. Um, I think I've covered everything I, I wanted to cover today. I hope uh, you've enjoyed catching up. Maybe at some stage during the season, we could have another catch up and see how things are going with you. Um, but it's really great to get the information, the background on Amarillo and a bit of information about what's happening now. So I really appreciate you joining us and thank you very much. Uh, I, um, I'm sure our customers in, the, uh, in Europe will be uh, very happy to, to see and hear all about that. Well, perfect. Anytime. I've always enjoyed my chats with you, Paul. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Great Thank stuff. You. Thank okay. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it's always good to catch up with Darren and find out what's going on over the other side of the pond and uh, particularly in Toppenish on the Amarillo farm. Um, keep an eye out for our next episodes. Uh, we'll be meeting with more growers, uh, 
also with breweries and having a chat about snippets from all sorts of parts of the hot world uh, that probably you didn't know about. Uh, my name is Paul Corbett and don't forget, keep it well hopped. See you soon. Bye bye.